after the incision. Spelled on a sudden floor in Indonesia. The part that is supposed to be my clitoris expands and bubbles, then bubbles and expands until arms, legs, and a head protrude a figure of flesh. Forms what looks like a body of mine, but the part cut out of me is still there. The body leaps across the Atlantic. I try to pull it down by the ankles, but its legs take me with it. We end up in front of my house, a plot of brick in the West I can name home. The body takes the key from my pocket, lets itself in, rushes to my room. By the time I enter, the body has opened both closets, rummaged through my things, puts nothing back. I ask the body, why won't you come back to me? The body scoffs. Why are you hurt? Because you're not mine anymore. The body shrugs its shoulders. Is that the only reason you feel loss? The body takes the shirt we once shared, the photograph of us together, the underwear we liked. I tell me, I miss you. I ask, can we ever happen again? The body leans in. A small pain is still pain. You cut out part of me. Do not be surprised that the rest of me left too. I sob. I choke out. I never wanted this. They said no one could touch us if there was nothing to touch. I heard another body died from an unwanted hand. The rest of it died shortly after. If I chose the hands that killed the same part, I could still live. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Homecoming podcast. Homecoming is a platform that provides the space for people who identify as Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander to share their stories, experiences, and insights about a variety of different topics. As always, I'm your host, Angel Rena. Um, as you guys have probably noticed, I am a bit sick right now. My sinuses are uh, kind of messed up, so that's why my voice is a little weird. But I've mostly just been taking care of myself at home, uh, resting, taking medicine, um, and I do feel much better than I did at the beginning of this week. I don't think it's COVID-19. I think it's just allergies because I went hiking this past weekend. But um, yes, uh, PSA to everyone out there, please make sure you keep wearing your masks outside, washing your hands, drinking lots of water, because allergy season is also hitting us right now. But anyways, I hope my nasally voice doesn't distract from the episode, because I've got an amazing guest today, Dena Igusti, on the podcast. And you just heard Dena reading their poem, After the Incision from their new poetry anthology, Cut Woman, which released, um, compared to the day we're recording this, just a few days ago. So this is super exciting, hot off the press work, and I encourage you all to buy their book. I'll put a link in the episode description, and I will definitely plug it again at the end of this episode. But today, Denna will be talking about their new book, of course, 
as well as their experience growing up as an Indonesian Muslim in Queens, New York. And um, also, content warning, I want to add that Dena will also be sharing their experience with female genital mutilation, or FGM, and the trauma that it created. And I know that is a really sensitive and heavy topic and may be disturbing to some people listening, but Dena wanted to share their story and that experience is a part of it. So um, to the listeners, if you ever feel you know, a bit uncomfortable or you feel like it's prompting your own trauma, uh, please pause the episode, take a breather and reach out for help if you need it. But yeah, let's move on and bring on Denna. Hi, Denna. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? How have you been? I'm great. Hi, Angelina. Thank you so much for having me on this. I'm super excited. Of course, I am so excited. And you should be pumped because you just had a book come out on the 25th, which is crazy. I know. It still feels unreal. And it feels weird calling myself an author. <laughs> like, first of all, even just saying it just feels a lot fancier than I actually am in reality. But <laughs> just having that documented somewhere on the internet is something where I'm like, oh, okay, my name's like associated with like, a very tangible thing. That's not a little nerve wracking at all. <laughs> No, that's crazy. Like that is just so amazing to be you're an author now. Like that's amazing. And I'm so excited to um talk to you about Cut Woman um among other things. But first, would you be able to introduce yourself to the listeners? Um you can mention your name, pronouns, uh where you're from, slash live, uh what your job is, slash what you do for a living your ethnic identity, and really any other part of your identity that you want to share? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Dana Gusti. My pronouns are she, her, they, them. I am a queer, non-binary Indonesian Muslim that was born and raised in Queens, New York. I am a writer of different kinds, not only in terms of poetry, but I'm also a playwright and a screenwriter and also a podcast writer as of recently. So, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, thank you. So in this first part of the episode, I just want to get to know you better and also just allow you to share your background and some of the experiences that sort of informed the content of your new book. So. I know this is a bit of a general question um, for the first one, but and, and feel free to, uh, you know, sort of share as much as you're comfortable. But what was your experience like as an Indonesian Muslim growing up in Queens, New York, specifically, and a queer, non-binary Indonesian Muslim at that? Yeah, growing up as specifically an Indonesian Muslim was kind of a tricky thing. While Queens, New York is a super diverse place, everyone knows it as like the world's borough, et cetera, et cetera. The Indonesian community in general and the Indonesian diaspora community, and specifically the Indonesian Muslim community, is really small. And a lot of people don't know much about us. So in other Asian communities, it was hard to even justify, or not justify, but emphasize and like have our stance and say that we're Indonesian and we're Asian. And then on the other side, for Muslims who are non-Indonesian, they never really saw us as Muslims either because we were Indonesian. So it was kind of this constant 
back and forth of trying to defend my identities and for my community defending our identities in terms of just like saying that we do belong in the Asian Muslim community, Asian communities and in Muslim communities. So we often had to lean on each other. Uh, my parents were part of the first generation of Muslims that came in the East Coast, specifically in New York City. And I was, and every Indonesian Muslim kind of gathered in one mosque in Woodside, Queens. And while that was super great in terms of there was a very specific rich community that like we could lean to, even if our neighborhoods were very separate from one another, there was still a very interesting way in which community surveillance kind of played a huge role in not only just the community itself, but also just how diasporic Indonesians understood culture and understood their connections with their identity. I think there was a huge level of shame that was very prevalent because there was such a binary idea of what was considered a good Muslim and what was considered a bad Muslim. And if you're considered a quote unquote bad Muslim, you were relatively shunned from the community, whether that was very explicitly and that means you weren't allowed to come to the mosque or that would just mean that other people wouldn't interact with you. And it was kind of difficult navigating those things because it kind of led me to a certain paranoia about um, being a good enough Indonesian Muslim. And if I didn't really follow along those lines, I felt as though I didn't have a direct connection to understanding my culture and understanding my identity fully because they were my immediate and direct contacts with my identity. So I think one of the criticisms that I do have with my upbringing in terms of that was that it focused less on trying to understand culture and collective history and more so on this like interesting form of just people snitching on one another and either competing with one another or trying to bring other people down and I think because of that it kind of just felt as though like understand my identity which is based on shame and based on my behavior and nothing else wow thank you so much for sharing that um yeah I I also want to ask you um about your experience with FGM and sort of how that community surveillance um, and shame sort of related to that experience. And so, yeah, like I, first of all, I I really want to say thank you for being so brave and like being willing to share all of these like sensitive and vulnerable parts of yourself on the podcast. And um, again, for any of these questions, like only go into the detail that you're comfortable with in your answers. But um, yeah, would you be able to talk about what FGM is, um, your experience with FGM, and sort of the cultural environment, um, community surveillance, shame aspect around it as well, and also just how you felt afterwards? Yeah, for sure. So to give a little preface, like understanding of FGM for those who don't know, so FGM means female genital mutilation. And that process is basically when there is a cutting or some other modification that occurs on the vagina. There are different types. So it's categorized by, I think it's type one, type two, type three, and type four. And 
type one is when the clitoris is fully removed and type two is when there is some type of modification that is done that has to do with scratching or sewing along those lines. Type three is when part of it is removed and type four is when the clitoris is cut and the labia is sewn together. Um, just to give a general preface in terms of FGM in regards to the Indonesian Muslim community. And that's also why being a survivor of FGM as an Indonesian Muslim was very difficult to navigate is that it's not a common practice. So it's not a common Muslim practice. It's not a common Indonesian practice, meaning a majority of Muslims and majority of Indonesians and even a majority of Muslims and Indonesians don't undergo it. It's very based on either tribe and or just the family dynamic. So for me, being an FGM survivor, I talked a little bit about community surveillance in the sense of I always felt as though I was being watched, whether that meant that I was being watched by the aunties at the mosque or by my extended family, or if I was even navigating things online just as a kid and as a teenager. Like there was also people back in Indonesia that were constantly watching my social media and navigating how I was doing things and waiting to essentially tell my mom whatever it was I was doing. So prior to FGM, I was very aware of the fact that being seen as a woman and going into womanhood was something that was relatively dangerous territory and that everyone seemed to have a very particular fear about me growing up or they would just make certain comments like, oh, she's becoming a woman now. Oh, she's reaching teenager years. Oh, she's becoming, she's going to become lalegani, which means like perverted or horny in Indonesian. And that basically just referred to puberty. And there was just such a fear with puberty. And especially with the fact that I grew up in America, how my family both extended and my immediate family, what they knew of American teenage hood was basically just whatever they saw in Lifetime in the local news. And it was just, either instances of people getting raped and getting assaulted um, or being in friend groups that weren't exactly the most safe. But there was just such a stigma around going through puberty in the U.S. So when I was about nine years old, uh, I went to my first trip to Indonesia. And when it happened to me, it kind of took me, not kind of, it completely took me by surprise. Because at that point, I was already in Indonesia for about a month. And my aunt just basically told me that we were going to go on a trip to the grocery store. She was like, all right, hurry up, put your shoes on. You don't need to get dressed. We're just going to the supermarket. But by that time, I already knew the route to get there by car. So when we went to the taxi, it was something, the route was a lot longer. And in the opposite direction. And I even remember falling asleep in the car. But I didn't know where we were going. And all of a sudden we were taken to a back alley and we were taken to someone's house in the back alley. Next thing you know, I was pushed into a living room. And then there was this woman in a house dress and a face mask and no gloves whatsoever. Who just said that I had to go to the back. I go to the back. There's a metal table. It's in a room where it looked like a kitchen, but there were also hospital medical equipment. 
that was on the kitchen counters. And then aside from the metal table, it pretty much just looked like a kitchen. And then I was sprawled on it. I was pushed on it. I couldn't leave. I think I was held down. And then they just did it. With FGM, there are two pains. The first one is when there's the actual cut. But the second one, which is the longer pain, is when they stuff gauze into a hole that's made that you know there shouldn't be a hole there. It's a very uncomfortable feeling. And I remember it was very difficult with the gauze stuff to walk and to move. And I was really scared. I was completely terrified. I was bleeding. And they just kept saying, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, stop crying, you're fine. I was put into a taxi cab and there was just so much blood that depending on how I moved and how I sat, it would pool even more. So I had to move a little bit forward to the edge of the back seat so that way none of the blood would spill. And then I got out, still could barely walk. And then once they removed the gauze, they were just like, see, you're fine. You're being dramatic, you're completely fine. And it was terrifying. And I think it also was just no coincidence that like afterwards I just never really spoke about it again and my auntie didn't acknowledge it ever again. And I think just because afterwards it became, the language started changing. So it's like, okay, like you're pure now. Oh, you're gonna be good now. Everything will be fine. You won't have urges when you get older. It kind of was seen as a somewhat positive thing, but also something that everyone just wanted to forget about. And after that, I felt the disconnect between me and my body, where I knew my body went through something that it shouldn't have, but I honestly didn't process it as trauma for like 10 years. It wasn't until college where I actually processed it as trauma because there was such a stigma around talking about genitalia in general and just talking about anything sexual in general that I just never talked about it, not even amongst my own Indonesian Muslim friends, not even amongst the Muslim friends that I knew because it just felt so taboo. So I kind of just was under the assumption for a really long time that everyone just went through it. It just wasn't talked about. And that was pretty much it. But it wasn't until college where I started meeting more Muslim girls and non-binary folks who also who were more willing to talk about sex and like discuss more and it wasn't until then where I realized that like I for the most part was the only one that really went through it so it took me a while to kind of realize that what I went through shouldn't have happened and what I went through was also a form of trauma and that it was actually trauma and I think it was difficult to process it as that because I was under the assumption for a very long time that it was meant to protect me. I was under the assumption and also I was very aware of the nuance and the complexity that came with I know that my extended family did hurt me but they thought that like it was meant to protect me and it was with the intention of trying to help me in whatever way they thought helping me looked like and also just the sad and painful fact that they underwent it too and they thought that it was normal and never saw this trauma themselves wow yeah 
thank you thank you denna um yeah for sure um yeah so you 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 talked about a lot just now um and one thing that really stuck out to me when you were talking just now and also when we uh were chatting earlier was when you were talking about how fgm sort of changed your relationship with your body and how you started um sort of seeing your body as a separate entity almost from yourself so i was wondering if you would be able to sort of expand on that and explain um yeah like how did fgm change your relationship with your body and how how you saw your body in relation to yourself for sure it felt it was difficult to navigate and i think it still is difficult to navigate the relationship with my body i think as i said before there i felt like there was such a disconnect between my body and myself and that i felt as though my body definitely suffered the immediate physical after effects of what had happened and had very like involuntary reactions to certain things that I myself just didn't process as trauma or process that as like PTSD and things along those lines. Like I, and to this day, for instance, if like I have a feeling that I'm going somewhere where I was told to go to or something, if I'm taken somewhere else by surprise, I just freeze and I go into total shock. And I'm not, I do not enjoy surprises because of that, especially anything that has to do with traveling. Um, obviously the immediate effects in terms of FGM, in terms of the vagina and things like that, and the clitoris. So I just felt this harsh disconnect. And I think also along with that, I felt as though I failed my body. And I felt as though I, if I had known what would have happened, I could have found some way to protect it. And if I knew that what happened to me was not supposed to happen to me, I could at least have helped my body in some way and tried to process it faster if I had known that that wasn't okay. So in that sense, I felt as though I failed my body, but also in some bouts of resentment sometimes, I also felt as though my body failed me and that like I completely froze up when it happened and that anything that happens to me, my immediate instinct is for my body to freeze up and not actually move. And I think I've always been frustrated with that. I think on top of that too, just the relationship between gender identity and also just body parts being associated with gender. And that has also led to a lot of body dysmorphia and a lot of a disconnect. So the whole intention with FGM basically is this assumption that if you do cut it, you are removed from sexual urges so you won't have premarital sex and that's usually one of the things that like has that's like the main point of fgm but i think there's also the unspoken aspect of fgm where it also just enforces cis womanhood onto you whether you want it to or not i think prior to fgm and just in general i've never felt like a girl but because FGM with the pain and the trauma that I went through was always associated with cis womanhood, I felt as though I had to 
and even still be connected to cis womanhood in a certain way, even though I don't necessarily enjoy that or I don't necessarily agree with that whatsoever. Like, I remember even after going through FGM, I was trying to get more into understanding non-binary gender expression. So I was trying to experiment with a bit more of the dragon's clothing. And when that happened, like a lot of my extended family members and even my immediate family members would say things like, oh, like, are you forgetting that girl? Well, we can go through all this again and we can remind you that you are a girl. Also, another thing with FGM is that like, after it happens to you, there's this saying where it'll quote unquote grow back and then they'll have it as in the quitters will grow back. If you have any sexual urges again, or if you're not being a quote unquote good girl, and they always threaten to cut it again. So I noticed that it wasn't only with sexual inhibition, like sexual desires or anything that had to do with engaging with anything physically. So whether that meant watching someone kissing or watching people engage in sex there was not only was that threat present there but also whenever I veered off from any forms of cis woman femininity so again if I like dress slightly more androgynous or if I was a more boyish look that threat of being cut again was also enforced so I think because of all these things I still just had a very huge disconnect with me and my body in terms of identity, in terms of just the response to it and my delayed response versus my body's immediate response. And just feeling the sense of mistrust between me and my body. Um, I mean, have you, do you feel like you're on, like this ma- This might sound so cliche, but do you feel like you are on the path of like healing and reconnecting with your body um yeah am i am i (laughs) okay i will say like i have taken steps towards healing and i've definitely taken steps yeah i've taken steps towards healing but it's been a little bit tricky So the thing with FGM, and I think this is also part of the reason why, like, there's still a slight dialogue and, like, further disconnect. Sometimes there's, like, disconnect between me and my body, although it's gotten a lot better just because I'm more aware of the processes, is that, like, with FGM survivors, not only before and during the trauma you are seen as a cis girl, but even in the healing of it, you are seen as a cis girl. Every resource that is available in terms of FGM, even by the definition of just saying female, but also just in further descriptions of describing FGM, it's always associated with girlhood and it's always associated with womanhood. If you look up FGM, people will always say girl's genitals. People will always say girl parts. So. Even with identifying my own trauma, I still felt like I had to resort to being seen as a girl, even though I am not whatsoever, and being seen as a woman, even though I'm not. And even when I tried to find specialized counseling services, which are available, by the way, um, one of the requirements is for you to be a woman. 
So for me, like I had to, and not in the sense of, I don't think my counseling services were super harsh or that like they were against people that were non-binary, but I think they too just assumed that anyone who went through FGM was just always going to stay as this girl. And that's not true whatsoever. But I had to kind of go through that healing in terms of understanding what exactly that practice is. And also, where does it come from intergenerationally? But also had to deal with the fact that I was still read as a woman. So I think I'm in that, I'm in the stage where I'm more understanding and I'm also more forgiving of myself and understanding that I was still a child when it happened and I can't, and I did what I could have done with the knowledge that I knew then. But I think I have, I'm still in the stage where I'm trying to figure out how to heal from it, where I'm, it's beyond girlhood and beyond assigned cis womanhood. I think that's the part that I'm still struggling with a little bit, just because there aren't really resources and aren't counseling services that are available for non-binary folks and just like non-cis women when it comes to FGM. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Dang. Yeah. I mean, I 100% like, I like, I can't understand like what you're going through. Right. But like conceptually, I can like I get how that is so complex and it's that's that's like such a bummer and so terrible that there aren't like resources and I guess like like you were saying like specialized counseling services for non-binary folks who yeah. have gone through this like that yeah wow yeah um, it's weird I think it's it's obviously it's like very weird just because like I think like it's like, I'm not justifying them whatsoever. I do see why they automatically just resort to women and girls just because the practice of it is so ingrained and the violence of it is so ingrained in womanhood. But right. I think it's the fact that they don't have that available to non-binary folks and even trans men. Mm-hmm. It also kind of just shows like what slips through the cracks when it comes to language and when it comes to like the language of certain processes because also another thing is that like at least for my counselor my counselor was also an FGM survivor so like I think people are just very quick to assume that like cis womanhood stays forever and that because the practice of it just always goes towards anyone with vaginas and just how like outside of FGM just like how much like vaginas are associated with womanhood so so much it like isn't surprising but obviously still frustrating and in terms of the um intergenerational trauma that you've spoken a lot of um do you feel like for a while you felt a lot of resentment towards those family members um oh yeah yeah I mean I can yeah I can understand yeah I definitely did I think it was just because like for the main well first of all it was just like the like just undergoing it's like hey I'm nine years old like no aspect of this is okay and I think also just how they act 
adapted during that time in terms of like prior to that they were one of the first few to kind of make comments about like me approaching like puberty but then there's also just the fact of like just being taken by surprise not once was there like hey like this is the thing that's going to happen to you not saying that it should have happened ever it shouldn't have happened whatsoever but like i didn't know they pretended that i was on a grocery shopping trip and then kind of gaslighted me into my pain in terms of just the shock and the trauma of it in terms of like of course yeah I'm in like excruciating pain and I'm crying and I'm scared I didn't know this was going to happen I was taken by surprise completely so I had a lot of resentment for it um just because everything just felt so calculated and so planned and it was calculated and planned um and I think something that I'm also navigating with it too is like understanding that I like that while I also understand that they too underwent it and went through the same process as me I also am still valid in having that resentment and like something that I learned with counseling is that like I can be mad and I can still be angry and I can still have resentment towards them and understand it's intergenerational they don't cancel out and they shouldn't cancel out I think I have a right to be mad at the bigger system and the bigger like intergenerational like and misogynistic practice of it but also being mad at the fact that like they still continually enable it and still kind of while understanding and not saying that like and I'm not saying that's easy to break generational practices especially when people have convinced you for years and years and years that it works but I think I still have the right to be angry over the fact that it happened to me and that they were people who like were supposed to protect me but like didn't while it was an act of protection technically they still hurt me and I think I can acknowledge both right yeah 100 percent um yeah, you've you've just gone through so much and thank you again for um sharing all of that and just like you know, just like revealing all of those raw and real parts of yourself. Um and I I'm also wondering um sort of how and if you translated all of those thoughts and feelings that you had um into creative projects because I know you are such a creative person um as you can see via your poetry anthology that you put out um but yeah do you feel like you translated all of those thoughts and feelings you had about like your experience with FGM and and Indonesia and community surveillance into creative endeavors and if you did um like, how do you feel like your cultural background and those experiences have influenced your creative projects? Yeah, I, I feel like I have, or at least in terms of the things that I've immediately wanted to discuss and kind of like go through and like translating those experiences in the sense of, I think I've been a lot of, especially when I first started writing and started um going more into art I was very weirdly private at first and I think 
I would want to talk about the pain that I went through, but I never really said, oh, this is what exactly happened to me, because I think I was very afraid of saving face for a really long time. And I was very afraid of like, oh, what will people think of me if I said this? Or like, what will people do or say if I said this? And it wasn't until I got more into writing, specifically writing poetry at the time, where I realized that like, that doesn't matter. And that I know that me being very self-conscious of what people think of me was a byproduct of just being under community surveillance and being under and growing up in a community in which like there were very tangible consequences if you didn't do quote unquote the right or the quote unquote respectable thing. So I think I ended up just starting to identify the specific traumas that happened to me, but also the ways in which like certain things did end up affecting me. So in that sense, yeah, I think I've tr- translated all of kind of my pain and identifying those pains and traumas into my work, not only with this book, with Cut Woman, but also in other forms and in other explorations of different aspects of communities. Like last year, I co-wrote an off-Broadway play with Mohammed Murtaza called Shadam, which means shame in Urdu. And it was a docu-theater play that navigated how shame manifests in the Muslim community. So that was kind of one way in which I did it. And that involved actual dialogue. So some of that also meant reenacting things I underwent, but also it meant imagining alternate realities and futures in which the pains and like the traumas and taboos that are very prevalent in the Muslim Indonesian community weren't actually acted upon. So yeah, I think in short, I have translated those traumas and those pains, but I think I've only I've also translated the reimagined futures and the reimagined possibilities of a lifetime without those pains and of lifetimes where those things didn't happen. Gotcha. Yeah. And I also, um, I also believe, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that a lot of your um, experiences with FGM and also like with your Indonesian heritage uh, inform. Um, your new book, Cut Woman. So let's talk about your new book. Like, this is so exciting. Um, as I told you over text, I, you, you know, you sent me over um, an advanced copy and I read it through and it was just like, so, it was just so amazing. And it was so raw and real. And it's been so long since I've read a poetry anthology, but after reading yours, I'm like, man, I've missed this. Like, I need to get back into reading <laughs> more poetry books. Oh my God, thank you so much. I'm actually really glad you said that because I'm, I'm still very nervous with the outcome of like, whether or not people are gonna like this book. So I'm really glad that you like it. And I'm really glad that like, it was an okay book to like, <laughs> yeah, you read okay. Oh, thank I'm- you. Of course. I'm so excited to talk about it. So yeah, let's just get into it. Like first, how did you come up with the title Cut Woman? And why did that specific phrase feel fitting for the anthology? Uh, so Cut Woman is the English, direct English translation of Sunat Barampuan, which is basically 
what is described as, which is the Indonesian way of describing um, female genital mutilation or the Indonesian word for female genital mutilation. And the reason why I wanted to use that title specifically was to kind of challenge. So it was for a couple of things. So it's just one, like not only in talking about my experiences with FGM, but also kind of challenging and also emphasizing that like um, the ways in which FGM specifically is very different from how not only like not only Indonesia, but the West in general perceives and sees circumcision. I think a lot of it's one thing that I constantly experienced when revealing that I was a survivor of FGM was it being compared to circumcision of those with like with circumcising penises. And while that comes with its own traumas and comes with its own pains as well, it's a very different practice in that the conversations and and the discussions that come around like circumcisions that have to do with the penis is like the conversation of health and whether or not it's actually good for you health-wise. However, when it comes to FGM, the main thing is that people, the people who do it and the people who enable it and enact it are very aware that it is not health-wise and biologically-wise, it's not good for you. It's not, it has no benefits. If anything, it does cause harm, but that's not the intention of it. The intention of it is to quote-unquote inhibit desire. So I kind of wanted to drive that a little bit home with that. But I think also the reason why I called it Cut Women was because I kind of wanted to, while I am a non-binary person, emphasize the ways in which like the concept of womanhood does feel cut from me and feels really separate from me in that like it is not something that I am attached to. However, because of what has happened to me, I feel bound to it. But I also don't feel wholly or fully like a woman. But also just, and on top of that too, like outside of FGM, a lot of what Cut Woman is about is about kind of the different losses and the different types of grief that I've gone through and just feeling displaced and disconnected from those griefs in a certain way, whether that meant losing people that I never saw for a very long period of time, losing homes and being evicted from homes, um, seeing my people, dying and still like on tv and no one paying attention and me not being able to do anything about it or just overall grief and disconnect of just feeling disconnected from my body and disconnected from just my own being wow there's so many layers that's that's incredible um and you kind of talked a little bit about this but i'm i'm also wondering like what was the creative process like of creating Cut Woman? Because I can imagine that it took a really long time. Um, what sort of inspired the anthology and how long did it take? Um, and how did you know which poems to include and also like in what order? Yeah, so in terms of the creative process of it, how it kind of came about is very tricky in that, or timeline wise, it's very tricky to describe because while I worked on Cut Women as a whole manuscript, for one year, a lot of the poems are about three to four years old. Um, so in terms of how a lot of the poems came about, I was basically in a really rough and a very difficult like transitional period where 
because of finances, I wasn't able to afford going to the college that I attended. So I ended up having to leave and come back to New York City. Um, but also when I left, I also like just realized and came to terms with the fact that I was a victim of trauma and that what happened to me shouldn't have happened to me. And also coming back to New York was a terrifying place in that when I, while it was my home, when I left it, there was a lot of trauma that happened. I was assaulted several times in my high school and then like went out of state for college. So coming back, I was just very paranoid and I was very depressed. Um, and on top and on top of that too, like within the few years that I was in out of state, New York changed almost completely for me. Gentrification has always been prevalent in New York City and it's always been an issue and it's still an issue. But just seeing how much I lost within a small span of time was just so terrifying and was just so heartbreaking. So to give a little bit of context, basically, um, in Queens, my family and I were evicted from our first apartment, then moved to South Austin Park. And then we had a bakery in 2005 in the Lower East Side, Manhattan. And then because of the rise in gentrification around 2010, it also, um, we had to close it down because of the rising rent prices and just a huge change in the neighborhood. And also the fact that we just saw a lot of people out of this place. So when I came back home, I like went back to Lower East Side and there were just a lot of things that took me off guard. Like, First of all, my first boyfriend, I found out, died. Um, I found out I would, like, bump into old residents who used to live there. They're like, oh, you know so-and-so? Oh, they passed away after they got kicked out. Oh, this person? Okay, they got evicted, but I've never seen them again. So it was just this constant change of just seeing, like, either, like, just losing a bunch of people all at once and trying to kind of find familiarity, but also being paranoid that I would bump into people that have hurt me. And then the same, around the same time, um, there was an earthquake in Lombok, Indonesia, and there was just such an emphasis on white tourists, an emphasis on Australian tourists, and people losing their vacation homes and vacation spots, and not the fact that over 500 people died. And like, that was always frustrating to me, but also it kind of took me back into a reflective period where even in like, back in 2004, there was one of the biggest tsunamis in Indonesia um, and it killed thousands of people, but it was completely trivialized. And there was a lot of controversies because people were making radio and song parodies of it. And like, they weren't called out whatsoever, but also because of these controversies, no one paid attention to the fact that people died, that thousands of people have died. So a lot of Cut Woman was writing Cut Woman and like the poems surrounding Cut Woman were focused on kind of what it means to process what I've already lost and coming to terms with like what I've lost, both expectedly and unexpectedly. Um, and also just the pain of knowing that the people around you will leave soon. And that also one day I'm going to die soon. And what does it mean to die? And what does it mean to have people that will die that are around you? 
And what does it mean to lose people when it's not surrounding death? What does it mean to, for me to lose really close friends and loved ones that I'll never see or hear from again? And I don't know if they're alive. So a lot of that was kind of just like a lot of mourning, a lot of grief, a lot of crying, and kind of just being immersed in that cycle, but also kind of documenting that cycle in a particular way. And how I ordered the poems was kind of, well, first in terms of writing the poems, they were kind of just very impulsive and it was just a matter of like documenting those processes, whether it was navigating the loss of my body or the loss of like some friends or reflecting on the loss of friends or seeing friends and family members who almost died or like were dying. And then how I kind of ordered the poems is kind of based on not only the chronological order of like how I was processing these things, but also kind of just like, what are the losses that like I have to confront, even though I'm afraid of them and the ones that I know I have to confront in the future. So how the poems are ordered are kind of just like first acknowledging the ways in which so many people have died, but also, but then kind of acknowledging the loss of my own body and then the loss of like, people who haven't died or have died and then poems that kind of reflected on the act of death and anticipating loss and grief in some way there's also the actual act of what has happened to me and like in detail what has happened to me in there as well but um in terms of fgm but kind of seeing it and also interrogating like what it meant for me as like an FGM survivor to only see people that went against FGM be people that were super racist and super Islamophobic and like acknowledging like hey like while what was done to me was terribly terrible and completely wrong it doesn't my body and my trauma is not a justification for neocolonialism and racism and xenophobia and Islamophobia Wow, I'm so sorry that you had to experience all of that. That sounds like such a, like a, just a terrible and like terrible <laughs> time. Like, I'm so sorry. Um, and, but, but like, I'm glad that it was also like some sort of reflective period, maybe, and, and creative period for you as well. Um, I, I also want to ask you, like, so you just released your book. It was on, on August 25th, um, 2020. Why did you feel like this was the right time and the right moment in your life to re- release this book as opposed to other years, other times, other periods of your life? Oof, that's a great question. I think this was a good time because I think, like, I think I needed to release this and release this work in a state of looking at everything in retrospect. I think if I did release this during the time where like I was in that huge death and scared of death cycle, I would feel as though my life and like the traumas and experiences of my life would just be constantly relive through me and I think in the promotion of whether that was like 
signing autographs for this book and like constantly facing the pages again and like reading like what I was still going through or reading these poems out loud and not having healed from them or just acknowledging the fact that like this work was out there and I still didn't fully process it I think it would just felt like I was constantly re-triggering myself and like I think it also would have affected me in terms of I would have thought it would have like it would have um indirectly affirmed that like trauma was my artistic muse which it's not whatsoever and like that's also not like how I wanted to write or ever want to write only from a place of trauma and from a place of pain so I think like I needed to like at least understand what has been done to me and also like understand where my fear of death and anxiety came from and identifying like the patterns that like I would undergo or the signs of those at the very least before I release this book. I think it would have been too much of an extension of myself at that moment. And I think it would have not only messed up how I was mentally, but also just how I would see my writing and how I would determine quote unquote good writing. Mm. Gotcha. So it's like you sort of had an opportunity to kind of step back and like see everything clearly, like and as a whole as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I think I needed that step back. I think mm. still within it, I think I would have been super messed up. And I think I wouldn't have been okay. Mm. I mean that make that makes sense, yeah. Um another thing that I want to talk about, uh an observation I made as I was reading your uh your poems was that a lot of them like after the incision, uh, you play around with a lot of movement of words and line spacings. You know, it's not like traditional poems that are like all centered or lined to the left or all lined to the right. Um, so why did you decide to do that? And what do you feel like that sort of spacing and distance and movement represent? Um, and or you can like totally feel free to be like one of those classic poets and say like it's up to the readers to interpret. That's okay. <laughs> I think as much as I love like readers definitely like I definitely encourage readers to interpret it as is. And I like please if you ever also ever want to send me interpretations that'd be amazing. Um, but for me in terms of writing it the reason why there was just a lot of space and a lot of movement and also playing with erasure was for a couple of things. So one, um, and also just like the fact that there's a lot of slashes, like literal slashes in it. I think one, I kind of wanted to illustrate the process, like the feeling of disconnect and the feeling of like isolation, not only in terms of like being an FGM survivor but just being alone and being alone in my own thoughts and just like being alone in my feelings for the most part and like playing with that space to focus on like that isolation but the other aspect of it and this is especially true for the erasures is like playing trying to emulate the act of drowning and trying to emulate water as much as I could in a particular way because a lot of 
deaths that are documented in Catwoman come from tsunamis and come from like people that are drowned. Um, for one of the poems, um, it's called um, "The Tsunami Drowns uh, Rick Delgado's USA for Indonesia," and USA for Indonesia was basically this parody song that was written in 2004 by this radio producer named Rick Delgado. And he, in response to the fact that thousands of people have died, wrote this super racist song to the tune of We Are the World. And I really don't want to say the full lyrics because they're just straight up racist. But basically, it goes along the lines of I saw the I was chilling in the beach in Indonesia and I saw a huge wave come and crash and drown all of these black Chinese looking and says the n-word and like what why right (laughs) I was like why and I was just like and like there was like a lot of controversy with it because like they like that producer also forced, um, I forgot which radio station it was, but forced like his radio station to play it and promote it. And they had, um, basically they had a radio host, uh, her name was Miss Info. And um, she was a Asian radio host and um, there were several other radio hosts as well. And, she already kind of had some beef in general with like the other radio hosts, but when that like song played, she was just like, "Hey, I'm very uncomfortable with this. I don't think this is okay." And the other radio hosts were just vehemently angry because also partially just because like there was already beef, but like more so because the fact that they were trying to keep their job because like Rick Delgado was their freaking boss. And it got into this whole fight where I think Miss Info got into a hiatus. Those radio, the other radio hosts got fired, but nothing happened to Rick Delgado, even though he created the whole song. So I kind of wanted to like create these different erasures, especially surrounding music, and kind of emulate the act of like water or kind of these poems being and lyrics being submerged in water to kind of emphasize that like at the end of all the like glitz and the parody and the jokes and quote-unquote jokes even though it's just racist banter i don't really know if we can call it comedy but whatever like people died and at the end of all of it when you get rid of all the fluff and this comes not only with just like this song but just in general when like we talk about death and the death of people that aren't white americans like people are dead and people are grieving and people are mourning and that's what it is there's very real pain that's like behind it and when you get rid of all that fluff it's just straight up death so that's kind of just what i wanted to emphasize in terms of all the like poetic forms and all that yeah i could definitely feel so much of the emotions that you were sort of trying to convey from different poems like like you mentioned you you played around a lot with like the spacing but also the slashes and like capitalization so I thought it was really cool how you sort of navigated those different elements and and played with those different parts of your poems um thought that was really cool and 
yeah like also what did you do for your launch did you did you party it up did you celebrate um like that's an, such an exciting day I know you can't really do much under like quarantine and home <laughs> orders but yeah I think like and maybe it's because I'm also like a performance poet so like even though I write this stuff I also have to like perform it a lot because like I started in like the world of slam mm. as I kind of did the total opposite and I just didn't do anything performative and I like just dedicated a day to just being like for the most part alone other than like a little celebration with like my friends and my partner like later on that night and I like watched tv I downloaded a very strange app game called Lily's Garden (laughs) (laughs) which like their promo is very weird and intense and that like it's just so weird it's just like the promo for it was so weird so like I got that I downloaded that game and like I just ate and I chilled and I think like I also because of like a lot of the different ways in which I work and because like I'm working a lot like and I'm always around people when it comes to working in some capacity like obviously with COVID I'm not directly with people physically but like a lot of Zoom meetings and a lot of like performing in a way that translates through screens like has worn me out over the past few weeks so I think like doing the complete opposite and just not technically not doing anything was like the way that I wanted to celebrate and party it up. But I do want to do something public. I just don't know what, because I'm trying to think of something that like, isn't just people being forced to watch another zoom reading. Mm-hmm. Also like something where it's like everyone that I know and love that are in different places can still celebrate with me, but that'll be like way later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, there's something that makes sense about that, right? Like you wrote, you wrote a whole book that's like 40 <laughs> yes. pages long and you put all your feelings and thoughts out there and like a sort of catharsis, like it's sort of like, a, I don't know, like a cleansing and then you're chilling, you know, like that makes sense to me. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for affirming that because, yeah, I do need to relax and I do need to be myself and be private for a second. Yes, you deserve it, man. And um, I'm also wondering, uh, yeah, we're, we're coming to the close soon, but um, I am also really curious about how people have um, responded to your anthology. I know you've gotten a lot of praise from these Uh, like from other poets and from readers but yeah like what kind of responses have you gotten and what kind of what are the responses that have sort of meant the most to you oh my god that's such a great question I like I think the common one that I've gotten but also like the response I've gotten that's super common but also the one that like impacts me a lot is when people are like dude I cried which like and not because like I want people to cry necessarily but I think like I'm always afraid of like how I communicate and I'm always like self-conscious that like how I describe myself because I'm very like I really don't like talking about myself in a very particular way so which is very ironic considering the fact that I'm a poet but I don't really like talking about myself like that but I think like but mainly because I'm so afraid of being misunderstood a lot 
So for people that kind of like empathize with me and empathize experiences that they've never had and still kind of feel something that's physical and visceral, like has been great, although I still want to make sure that they're okay and that like they take care of themselves. And like, I think the, while, so not all the books have been like completely, like haven't been um, sent out to everyone yet, like as of right now, but like, um the reactions that I'm like worried now yes I am worried about and but also anticipating is like are like people that I used to be close to like they haven't heard from me in a while and like this is like the documented thing that's like the most updated thing that's like about me like some of these people I haven't talked to in years, but they're like, "Hey, I like ordered your book, and I can't wait to get my copy." And I'm like, <gasps> "You're gonna read this. <laughs> no, you're gonna react." <laughs> so, I because like all the books haven't been out, I haven't gotten all the responses yet. But like, that's kind of just a praise of like, "Oh, like you're such a profound writer." The like the responses have been like oh you're such a profound writer or like oh like, I never expected you to have this voice which I'm like hmm interesting but okay <laughs> I wonder why you don't think I have this voice is it because I'm like like a young Asian femme like is that what it is but like mm. that's a whole other discussion but yeah I'm like still very nervous about what the upcoming responses are gonna be I'm sure you're gonna get so many like great comments and and praise like even though like there might be those haters out there you know there'll always be haters so and like the 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 positive feedback you're you'll be getting will be like a hundred times as prominent um as like the negative comments so I'm I'm really excited to see how people react to it because you've I mean like I've said like you've already gotten so many um positive things and like so many like like esteemed poets saying your 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 anthology is really great so like you're good you're good man <laughs> thank you Angelina. thank you for that affirmation because honestly I need it because I'm nervous I'm still nervous but like thank you for saying that because it helps a lot of course and one thing that I want to point out I'm not sure actually if um like yeah because this is on this statement was on the last page of Cut Woman. So, you know, shout out, like, it, listeners to Homecoming, if you buy Denna's book, um, definitely, like, go to the last page because this is an important part. Um, sort of in your acknowledgments, I noticed that you said, if you care about democracy, abolishing environmental racism, and the abolition of state colonialism, you should pay attention to Indonesia. Hashtag reformasi korupsi. Um, so can you expand on what you meant there? And why did you want to include this statement at the very end in the acknowledgments? Yeah, so I'm also very worried that I'm going to like slightly butcher this. But like, so basically, um, where Reformasi Bikurupsi comes from is um, basically is a hashtag that came around around late 2019. Um, and basically in Indonesia, there are certain laws that like during the formation of 
Indonesia, like back in 1945, they were pretty much left dormant. Like they're super old laws. There were never actually passed. There were no actual like policies that were surrounding them or no tangible policies that were surrounding them for the most part. However, um, especially in terms of the recent election and also just like all of a sudden, the Indonesian government just starts passing all of these different laws that are not only completely outdated, but also kind of just affirm the ways in which like state colonialism and also um, and like environmental racism and also just like environmental issues and like the huge like class disparity that's present in Indonesia like end up um, being further enforced. So to give a little bit more context, um, basically um, Indonesia has like took over West Papua um, and they're not recognized as a part of Indonesia, but they still do not have independence from Indonesia. And last year, during um, August 17th, which is Indonesian's Independence Day, a Papuan student, um, instead of raising the Indonesian flag, wanted to raise the West Papuan flag. And pretty much like the Indonesian government was vehemently against it, still did it anyway. And it like resulted in like mass police control and mass police brutality and violence in Papua where they've killed several Papuans. Um, they have enacted military violence and they've also implemented propaganda, propaganda that like supported control over West Papua. Um, and then there's also just certain laws that are like being enacted in which like it severely hurts like queer people and women and like especially Indonesian women um in terms of for instance like not protecting Indonesian domestic workers um if something happens to them overseas um making birth control illegal allowing um premarital sex to be punishable by law allowing um gay sex and like um queer like and just public displays of queer affection um, be punishable by law. So reformasi de corrupsi is a hashtag that kind of enforces the fact that like, while like Indonesia has been trying to fight corruption for years, they're still doing practices that aren't that different from the previous history of Indonesia. And I wanted to put in that statement just because I wanted not only not to like be like, I'm different from every other diasporic Indonesian. I know what's happening in my homeland, not necessarily in that way, but, but also, but just more so of kind of paying attention to it. Cause I think like, I'm very aware of the people who read my work and it's like a mix of like diasporic Asians who are also kind of in a similar mindset as me but also like white women who feel like they can cry on my shoulder after I read a poem which also isn't cool and I'm not comfortable with that and I think I also want to add that because like it's very easy to kind of just like 
pity someone who is of certain diasporas and not pay attention to like what the people of people of someone's identity like actually goes through like I know a lot of people feel like sorry for me or feel pity for me or like oh my god like Dennis has gone through so much trauma but like not once will they ever like pay attention to what Muslims and Indonesians and Muslim Indonesians and like queer Muslim Indonesians go through so I just wanted to kind of put that in order to kind of just be like hey like there's other stuff that's also happening and if you hate what I went through like here's something that's still ongoing that like will further hurt me and make poor people that are like have similar traumas as me for sure yeah well like to the listeners I mean you heard Denna um if excuse me (laughs) sickness is coming out (laughs) and I hope you're okay Oh, no, thank you so much. I'm feeling much better. So it's all good. But yeah, to the listeners, you heard Denna, like definitely try to, you know, educate yourself on issues that are happening in other countries. Like I know there's a lot of stuff that's going on in America, like right now, but and, and it seems like everything's sort of crumbling. But I mean, if you have the emotional capacity right now, like definitely you know, do your research, spread awareness, and uh, yeah. So, Dana, last question before we move on to the rapid fire questions. Um, so, now that you've sort of had some time to sit back, your your book's released, and you've seen the product in its entirety. Um, what do you feel like Cut Woman represents to you? Ooh, what does it represent to me? Okay, I I think Cut Woman represents a number of things. I think, like, for me, I think, obviously, like, as we talked about before, like, it is a lot about kind of experience, about, like, being an Indonesian Muslim survivor of FGM, but more importantly, it is kind of an affirmation to myself. A document it's a documentation and an affirmation to and of myself in different ways. Um, so for a little bit of context in terms of myself, like there's so many things that I don't know in terms of like my family history, um, the history of all of my identities, and like the communities that I belong to. Um, But especially in like my immediate family, there's not a lot of documented history either because family members didn't preserve it or because of um, years and years of colonialism, there isn't documented history of like my lineage and like, and my communities just in general. So like, for instance, I don't really know the name of my, grandfather and the history of my grandfathers because they died long before I was born on my dad's side both of his parents um died so he was orphaned um but I have no clue who they are I don't know their names so there is a lot of disconnect as to like 
my own lineage so this is kind of just a marker for me of like hey this is like kind of proof that like at one point I was alive and at what point I was here at this time and I these are the things that I went through up until this point and this is surviving now um but also kind of this documentation of like the ongoing list of people that have died um that I've known and loved or have never known but still love like I think technically there are over 230,000 people who have passed away that are somehow directly or indirectly noted in my book um which includes the natural disasters that I mentioned before the 2004 tsunami and the 2017-2018 earthquake in Lombok um the documented um, deaths of Muslims who have been killed as a result of Islamophobia. Um, and just the loved ones that I've lost and also kind of the ones that like were lost even after this book was accepted. Like when, like I was in the middle of writing the manuscript, three loved ones that I knew died. And then after the book was accepted and like in the process of being published, like four people that I loved and held dear died. So it's kind of just this ongoing documentation of them as well. And I think also just like symbolically, it's kind of just like an affirmation of just survival and that it's survival isn't just a very permanent stage in life. And it's not necessarily one definitive like isolated stage either it's constantly ongoing it constantly like wavers and in turn just death and death in general also isn't a separate stage an isolated stage in life either it's not a deadline it's not like a these are all the things that like I have to do before I die or else once I die I no longer exist I know that I will end up existing beyond death I know the people that I love have existed beyond death so it's kind of that affirmation of that as well. Well, thank you. Um, again, Dana, thank you so much for like coming onto the podcast, sharing so many of your stories, um, promoting your book. Like this was definitely a really great episode, and I just like I have nothing but like thanks for you and um <laughs> yeah it, it 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 takes a lot to be so raw and like I really appreciate it um so let's move on to the rapid fire questions uh this is something that I do with all of my guests who come on to homecoming and like just say whatever is you know on your mind whatever first comes to mind okay got it all righty first if you could describe your book, Cut Woman, in three words, what would they be? Ooh, okay. I'll say pink, um, devastating, and joyful. Ooh. Okay, yes. Next question. If you had to delete all but three apps on your phone, which ones would you keep? Oh, God. Okay. I can't get rid of Instagram. um can't get rid of my email app and I also hate that like they're all productivity related I can't get rid of whatsapp because that's the way that I 
can text my parents and like my aunties and they won't use iMessage and they won't use Instagram or any other social media app. That's the only way I can ever communicate with them. Also, they all have iPhones. It's not as if they can't use like iPhone Messenger. They just won't communicate unless it's WhatsApp. So I need to talk to my parents. So I have to, I got to keep WhatsApp. Yeah, that makes sense. All pretty practical ones. Um, (laughs) All right. Next, who is your poetry icon and what's your favorite poem or anthology of theirs? That's so hard. Okay. I'm going to have to say, I'm going to have to say Fatima Asghar. Um, she is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant uh, crimson poet, um, and is also a filmmaker. Was Emmy nominated for um, her web series Brown Girls, and her poem Pluto Shits on the Universe was the first poem I've ever encountered from her. But also, like, which was basically about like Pluto responding to the fact that like, um they were kicked off the solar system and not deemed a planet anymore. And like, it's just a very funny poem, but it's also just like a poem that like is a great metaphor for like decolonization and like challenging validity. So yeah, also they're very stylish. They're just really stylish and I want to dress like them. And I want to dress like that too. (laughs) I want to dress like her. Yeah. Awesome. And last question, if you could give a piece of advice to a young poet um, or a young BIPOC poet or writer or creative out there, what would you say to them? I would say, oof, there's a lot of things I'll say. If I had to give any advice, it would be, okay, I'm going to have to say two, but like one, just be patient. But the second thing, mainly, is don't write or go into projects just for the sake of representation. And the reason why I say this is because, yes, in some ways, representation is very important and very pivotal. And, like, of course, there's a lot of power that comes with seeing your people and seeing your own in different formats and in different mediums. However, you do have to interrogate what it means to kind of have those representations like not only on a certain medium but also the institutions and the systems that are kind of in place it doesn't mean anything to me for instance if there's indonesian representation about when about an actor when like their indonesianness is not at the forefront and it's not actually challenging anything for instance i don't want an indonesian cop I don't care for an Indonesian I don't care about an Indonesian on screen that advocates for capitalism and systemic oppression in particular ways. I don't care. Even if we have the same face, same face, it doesn't matter. Um, and also like when it comes to kind of writing things about representation, a lot of these places, whether that be publishers or people in movies or in theater or in podcasts too will often use representation as a guise to either undersell you and undervalue you or bring up stories that you are not comfortable with. 
So if representation is your only goal, like you have to really interrogate that or maybe not do art if it's just on representation and nothing else. Great advice. Thank you so much, Denna. Um, Before you go, last thing, where can people reach out to you if they have any questions about what we talked about in the episode today? And I also want to give you the opportunity to plug, promote any current or future projects that you're working on. And also, where can people buy Cut Woman? So if you ever want to reach out to me, whether that is for bookings, features, speaker stuff, or if you just want to ask for my advice and stuff, um, you can email me at dena, D-E-N-A, dot igusti, I-G-U-S-T-I, at gmail.com. Or you can go into the, my website, dena, igusti.com. Uh, for social media, if you ever want to message me or ask me things or just follow me, my handles for Instagram and Twitter are Dispatch Dena. So Dispatch, D-E-N-A, all lowercase, all together, no spaces, nothing. Um, and in terms of buying Cut Women, you can buy Cut Women at Game Over Books or SPD at Small Press Distribution. And yeah, it is on sale. Please go buy it. Please buy a copy. Share with your friends or request that at your library. It would be amazing if you, you requested that at your local library. Yeah. Ooh, amazing. Yeah, everyone, I will once again put the link to buy Denna's Cut Woman in the episode description. The last I checked, it cost $15. Um, and yeah, I I read the book. It's amazing. I'm going to vet it. I'm going to promote it. Um, yeah, so and 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 like Denna said, if you are interested in contacting um, them about any bookings or readings or you know just want to like Dennis just a cool person you just want to talk with them like hit, hit hit them up absolutely thank you so much Lena. it was such a great episode um, thank you so much for coming on um, and I'm sending all of my love and my well wishes to you Yes, and thank you so much for having me, Angelina. And this is just an amazing podcast. And I'm so glad that like you've cultivated the space and all the love to you and all the amazing vibes to you as well. <laughs>